I'd like to acknowledge the traditional caretakers and inhabitants of this land across Australia. Also locally where I stand, the Beerpai people, who continue their cultural practices, wisdom and law. Hi and welcome to the Pollination Mamas podcast, where we have collaborative conversations, cross-pollinate and connect, as we span our wings across topics such as feminine wisdom, womb wisdom, herbal plant medicine, natural fertility awareness, postpartum care, sacred sisterhood, sacred motherhood, women's circles and deep connectedness. If you're here, I believe you too are on a journey to reclaim and revitalise ancient feminine wisdom in a modern context, not only for ourselves now, but for future generations to come. Thank you so much for being here. Okay, welcome to another Pollination Mamas podcast. Super excited today to have Lily Nichols here, who is a best-selling author for real, of Real Food for Pregnancy. And she also has a book, Gestational Diabetes, Real Food for Gestational Diabetes. Um, so Lily is a registered dietitian nutritionist and certified diabetes educator who has devoted her career to researching real food, nutrition for pregnancy and gestational diabetes. As I said, she's the author of two best-selling books, Real Food for Pregnancy and Real Food for Gestational Diabetes. Lily's work is highly research-based and she's passionate about educating everyone to become more informed on how prenatal nutrition plays a fundamental role in maternal health and baby's development. So we'll get straight into it. Thanks so much for being here, Lily, from the other side of the world, matching time zones. Um, so like I said, you're extremely researched in the area of prenatal nutrition. And one important factor that you highlight a lot is kind of breaking down some myths and looking at our current standards compared to what we actually need um, in the, during pregnancy and prenatally and after. So just to give people a bit of an idea, do you reckon you could give us a few examples of those myths and um, some examples of how we need to readjust the standards possibly. Yeah. So I think the longer you're in the prenatal nutrition space and the more down the research rabbit hole you go, the more you realize that a lot of our nutrition requirements here in the U S they're like dietary reference intakes or recommended daily allowances. There's different ways to describe them, but those numbers are really best guesses their best estimates. And research is constantly evolving and showing us new information. So a a couple examples of areas that have um, recently been questioned by research. So the protein requirements in pregnancy. I mean, that's like fundamental macronutrient absolutely required for growing a new human being and supporting um, a mother, a pregnant mother's growing tissues as well. Uh, The first ever study that directly measured protein needs in pregnant women was performed in 2015. And they found that our current recommended intake, at least in the US, underestimates the protein requirements of pregnancy by a lot. Um, I think it was like 30 something percent in early pregnancy and 73 percent in later pregnancy. Um, So that's that's significant when we're talking about 
the meal plan ideas that might be given to pregnant women or um, yeah, food suggestions, combinations, if they're all based on a lower protein standard, then maybe that's an issue. Not to mention that a lot of our high protein foods come with a lot of micronutrients that are important for pregnancy, um, which ties into another nutrient that we're now finding we require more of than the current recommendation, which is vitamin B12, something you find pretty much exclusively in animal foods. People argue that you get it from dirt and get it from algae. And like, I don't know how many people are eating a lot of dirt, but the animals do. Not from my <laughs> two-year-old. <laughs> yeah, right. And their guts help... Um, the bacteria in their guts help, help metabolize and mobilize the B12 into their tissues. So we pretty much get our vitamin B12 from animal foods, which is why people who don't eat a, a diet that includes enough or any animal foods are at risk for a deficiency in B12. Um, and they're finding now that the recommendations for B12 are too low by about a factor of three. So we need triple the amount of what the current recommendation is in order to just maintain B12 status over the course of pregnancy. Um, and that's, that's important for brain development. It's important for neuromuscular control. They've found that um, B12 levels at about 18 weeks of pregnancy will predict a baby at around six months or so's vitamin B12 levels as well. Mm. Um, and the serum level needed to like support adequate B12 in baby is actually more than double what we consider the cutoff for deficiency. So just a couple little data points that are showing us like, we mm. probably need to think twice about maybe revising the B12 suggestion. Um, and then another one, I'll just throw in one more would be choline. So mm. choline, it's a nutrient I talk a lot about because I think it's kind of the uh, a forgotten nutrient and it's kind of new the new kid on the block it's related to b vitamins we didn't have a recommendation in terms of intake for it until 1998 in the u.s and the recommendation that they set was based on um, estimates from adult men and then they just use a mathematical formula to estimate how much um, would be required for fetal needs and then set the pregnancy recommendation well, now that they've started understanding the role of choline in brain development, which is absolutely vital, arguably just as important or more important than folate. We all know about folate because they have mandatory folic acid fortification in a lot of places, specifically to help brain development and prevent um, neural tube defects. Choline is involved in that exact same pathway in the body. And now we have... Um, really good quality evidence, randomized controlled trials showing that more than double the current recommendation actually optimizes fetal brain development. So again, as we get more data, it's not that like our recommendations are all horrible and we can't take any of them for being useful. I think it's still wise to at least hit the recommended amount, but optimal intakes might be higher than what we thought. Yeah, that's it's so interesting, so important. And like you make a really interesting point, which keeps coming up, is that a lot of the science is based on men and then just adjusted a little bit. Oh, look, we have similar glasses. Oh, yeah. 
I love it. Yeah, blue chip glasses. Um, yes, which is just crazy that when looking it at is. science for hormones, for women, for reproductive age, for pregnancy, to not give that extra credit and do science around what is actually needed specifically, especially when it has a follow-on follow -on effect to everyone who is ever born. Um, I'm glad you touched on the choline. So because I've listened to quite a few of your podcasts as well that you've done with people. And it really rings true to me because of the foods that I craved in pregnancy. Mm. The choline is found in high amounts in eggs and liver. Is that right? Yep. Those are yeah. the two richest sources. Yeah. So it's great. There's a vegetarian source and there's a non-vegetarian source there. And um, I love making chicken liver pate. So, and I would crave that. So my body yeah. was because I'd had that food, high choline food before and I would crave eggs. And I think that's part of um, retraining people to think about foods as well. If they've had access to lots of high nutrient foods, then often their body will crave that in pregnancy. And so right. what you're saying is um, there's these standards, but if you're craving more of that or you're even getting any sort of craving, you probably are needing more nutrients from somewhere because yeah. and, oh, and I'd like to say sometimes the craving issues can be this is all anecdotal just what I've observed in practice we don't have like data on this but I have observed that women who come into pregnancy previously eating a more plant-based vegetarian or vegan diet they tend to have bigger cravings for meat and eggs and liver and oysters and fish and some of these really um high nutrient dense foods that have some of the nutrients that may have previously not been supplied in adequate amounts in their diet, like choline, B12, zinc, iron, um, DHA, selenium, iodine, some of the things that are maybe available on a vegetarian diet, maybe not, or maybe not supplied in sufficient quantities. They tend to have bigger cravings for those foods where the ones who are more heavy on the omnivore side, especially big animal product eaters, sometimes they actually get averse to those foods mm. for a period of time. And so it seems like there's, there's some degree of like body intelligence going on that's trying to guide us to the things we might need more or less of. And I don't think we'll ever have hardcore data on it, but it's an interesting observation at least. It really is. And yeah, I had some questions about that later, but now we're talking about it. I had a similar experience. So I was vegetarian many, many years ago and my periods became, and I was a very conscious vegetarian. I was studying naturopathy. I was reading books about nutrition. I was protein combining. So I'd get my full amino, uh, amino acid spectrum, things like that. Right. Um, eating very organic and fresh and, um, and my periods were just getting worse and worse. And mm. eventually I started walking past a butcher and instead of gagging, I was salivating and I was like, okay, it's time to eat meat. So I started just eating little bits at a time. I started eating kangaroo because that's something I could access over here in Australia. And immediately, as in the next period, was pain-free, it was easy, there was way less PMS. And from that point on, I just knew <laughs> that I had that very experiential experience. Um, with my own periods. But then with my pregnancies many years later, with um, my oldest girl, I craved a lot of these high nutrient foods. Then with my second, who's only 20 months now, I became averse. 
in the first trimester, I just I was like, maybe it's a vegetarian baby. It was a joke. But um, I just didn't want to eat many animal products. And maybe yeah. that's because my stores were already up, even though I needed to be careful of iron and other things like that. Right. Then it kicked in again throughout the pregnancy. Yeah. There was a period. I mean, that's all I can figure because it's such a common one. And you especially hear it from big meat eaters that they were averse to meat. Um, early on I mean food aversions cravings nausea the first trimester is just it's a total crapshoot yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it is you don't know what's gonna hit um, but it, it does seem like that would make sense like sometimes it's hard to explain why you have certain cravings for things but if you really think nutritionally about what does this specific thing supply for my body it, you can you can nutritionally rationalize just about any craving yeah yeah and i guess also there's a bit of a um a liver hormonal overload in the first trimester as the hormones climb up so the liver might be saying okay can you ease off on certain foods for a little while while i readjust to the hormones yeah um i guess that's where um, education and preparing before a pregnancy is so important because that first tr trimester is so nuts and sometimes you're just surviving and eating what you can. Um, yeah. But if you've built up your stores and you've got yourself to a nutritionally sufficient place beforehand, then you've got that little bit of leeway. So yeah, um, I completely agree. Leading into that, I'd love to just talk to you about fats, good fats. And also, do you have a Western A price influence? Um, and have you looked at the traditional wisdom of other cultures and their fertility foods and then applying that in a modern context? Well, all, all of the above. So um, I was introduced actually to Western Price's work before I started studying uh, nutrition. I was I mean, formally in school, I mean, but um, I was working for a nutritionist. I was vegetarian at the time. So, um, and she introduced me to nourishing traditions. And then of course I read Price's original book, Nutrition and Physical Degeneration. And it really got my wheels turning on just how different the information was from what all the authorities say about what we should eat, you know, cause I, I was like you, I was eating a really high quality vegetarian diet. I was combining proteins. I was soaking my beans and nuts. I was sprouting my grains. Um, I didn't go fully vegan, but I was, um, you know, limiting my fat intake, you know, not too much butter. I never went the margarine route, thankfully, <laughs> but I really was doing high quality food. I wasn't doing fake meats. I was doing, you know, whole pulses and beans and big like kale bean soups. And, but it, it was not, um, my, my health suffered significantly and, and in a fairly short period of time. Uh, and that it took a long time actually to kind of get back to square one, but Western prices work was, um, really, relevatory to me to think about food in the context of what did our ancestors eat and why, which things did they emphasize, the information on how it could impact like foods that were emphasized preconception and how that would impact the baby's development. You know, he was a dentist, so they were looking at the um, 
health of the teeth and and sort of like what we think of now as like orthodontia like did they have a wide enough palate to support all of their teeth like you actually do see you know tooth disturbances skeletal deformities and all sorts of things in in periods of inadequate prenatal nutrition and i think nowadays we don't really think about it it's sort of a given that like everybody's going to need to have braces you know but when you think about it for a minute it's like that doesn't that doesn't make sense that like your teeth would be such a wreck that you couldn't actually properly masticate your food and nourish yourself. Yeah. Like that's a problem. And before modern dentistry and modern medicine, if you had an abscessed tooth, like you might die without antibiotics. So some of these things were like more dire before we had all these modern medical interventions to sort of like fix everything. Um, so I, I found his work really compelling and it was something that I was always in the back of my mind in my dietetics training. So I wasn't going through my training with like rose colored glasses on like, yay, the recommendations are set in stone and doctrine and you can't question them. I was always like, let me look up some research on vitamin K2. At the time there was like almost nothing in the literature. Let me look up some research on vitamin A and retinol and let me look up, you know, so it really yeah, helped helped me have a different context for understanding why our recommendations are what they are and, you know, what we can learn from what other cultures have been doing for centuries. Um, so ultimately, back to your original question about fat, that did, of course, make me question all the recommendations that we have on fat, which are this heavy emphasis on unsaturated fats and plant plant-sourced fats. And when you think about just traditionally where we would get our fats, like you would usually be getting a significant amount from animal foods. If you've ever done any hunting or had like a cow share or a pig share, there's a lot of fat on animals and it's really, really easy to extract the fat. You just render it on the stovetop with a little bit of water and you have enough fat for years possibly from a single animal whereas nowadays we're like monocropping soy and corn like how are you, how would you extract corn oil from corn in your kitchen you can't like you need chemical solvents you need massive industrial machinery and a lot of different complex chemical processes to separate it extract it deodorize it winterize it, all these processes that they go through. And it just doesn't make sense that that would have been a significant part of our diet. And I think nowadays we're having more research that's showing like, hey, maybe these unsaturated fats, particularly the high omega-6 saturated fats, aren't the best idea because we've been heavily consuming them for the past several decades or beyond. And the rates of heart disease are really, really bad as we've been replacing saturated fats with these unsaturated processed vegetable oils or industrial seed oils, whatever you want to call them. Yeah. And sim there's similar statistics and health issues here in Australia and similar standards to America. So it all does yeah. quite well. Yeah. You make such a good point when you think about how we have evolved and what we've biologically become accustomed to gaining our nutrients from. There's no way we could have obtained a lot of plant fat and anyone that's made bone broth will know how much 
fat you get from that afterwards when yeah, the you do. Is on top. Which you can eat. Yeah. Which like we do. <laughs> People are like, what do you do with the fat on the top of your broth? Do you skim it off? I'm like, well, if I'm going to skim it off, I'm reserving it for cooking. Like That's my nothing favorite. goes to waste, you know? Um, it's actually a very sustainable way to eat to be utilizing the fat that you're naturally getting with your your animal foods. People are like, what about your cholesterol? Is your cholesterol really high? I'm like, no, actually, my cholesterol is in a really happy place. I mean, most people would probably look at my cholesterol panel and think I eat a vegan diet, but it's pretty high in saturated fat. Animal fats are their primary source of fat in my diet, actually. Yeah, absolutely. And some people still have that myth that when you eat a lot of fat, you're going to get fat. And it's absolutely not true. It's more the carbs and the sugar that's causing um, health issues, but also being overweight, which then comes with another set of health issues. Yeah, I'm the same. I eat quite a bit of butter because I can handle the dairy um, in that form and a lot of fat from the bone broth and fat, fat, fat. And I try to limit my sugar and carbs. And people are like, how are you eating all that fat but not putting on weight? <laughs> and I'm like, because it's energy and I'm just burning it. The same as yeah. if your pasta or your rice and that's energy. But um, it's, it's quite easy to burn it and to access that energy. And it makes sense that traditionally people would have used that as an energy source. Can you tell me a little bit about um, how traditional cultures might have used that for fertility foods and how fat intake either goes up during pregnancy and postpartum? if it stays the same yeah well one of my arguments against the recommendations to eat a low-fat diet in pregnancy is that not not just from like defending saturated fat being okay but like what what are you getting along with the fat and what do you miss out on when you take out the fat so when you look at a diet that complies with the guidelines to eat low fat and low saturated fat, you're automatically limiting your richest sources of choline, B12, iron, zinc, DHA, vitamin A. Those things are all limited if you start eliminating the fat. Another one would be glycine, a really important amino acid during pregnancy and postpartum healing. And that tends to be concentrated in the skin and connective tissue of animal foods well guess what like the chicken skin is where most of the fat is and if you're cooking a tough cut of meat like you're making you know pork shoulder or you know a bone-in beef roast there's a lot of fat in there as well and so the more you start limiting the fat the more you start limiting your intake of these other necessary micronutrients and that's my biggest really the biggest argument against it in my opinion is that you limit your micronutrient intake and i'm all about just upping your intake of the necessary micronutrients that all this data is showing us we need more of um and then of course we do have data on fertility showing that if you limit your fat consumption too much particularly dairy fat seems to be one that tends to be associated with better fertility um, it's pretty high in, in vitamin A compared to some other sources of fat. So it could be related to that. We're not sure. Um, but the more you start limiting your intake of fat, you tend to have more issues with producing adequate amounts of your sex hormones. I mean, your reproductive hormones are 
made of cholesterol as a backbone. So if you eliminate your rich sources of dietary cholesterol, and then all of these micronutrients that are involved in hormone metabolism, you could potentially be setting yourself up for some future fertility issues. Yeah, I'm glad that you summarized that. Fat isn't just fat. It has a really key role in hormone production, but also carries all of those fantastic micronutrients. Um, oh, I forgot to say before, I'm jumping a little bit because it's so interesting. But for anyone that's not familiar with Weston A. Price, he was a dentist in the 1920s, I believe, who travelled around the world and made observations on um, people still eating a fairly traditional diet at a time when the industrial diet was becoming more widespread. And so he could easily, within a small area radius, go and study people who were still eating almost completely traditionally, and it was often high fat, uh, high animal fats, and then study people who had a generation or two of an industrial diet, so high white wheat flour, sugar, things like that, refined carbohydrates. And immediately he was noticing as a dentist all those dental malformities that you talk about, overcrowding, more cavities. But he also made some observations on um, birth issues. And because that wasn't his area of expertise, I don't think that was studied highly, but he did make those observations even as a dentist, which I find interesting. Yeah. In 20. So, yeah, there's Western A. Price if people want to look um, – the Western A Price Foundation up and also a book called Nourishing Traditions by Sally Fallon, who's sort of a fairly leading spokesperson for mm -hmm. the Western A Price. Um, so glycine is something that I've only really just started learning a bit more about sort of following your work and it's linked to methylation, which I find so interesting because methylation is sort of the buzz thing that lots of people are talking about at the moment. People are talking about pyrroles and um, everyone's got pyrroles and I'm not saying that maybe everyone does. <laughs> well, a lot of people do, a huge percentage of the population. And um, the role that methylation can play in having a huge detriment to people's health. And then when I saw the glycine link there, um, so, uh, yeah, do you know, have you seen any more research about that? Can you expand on any theories or research that you know about, about glycine yeah. methylation? So, um, first of all, methylation is central to your health during pregnancy and baby's development. I mean, when you're talking about like transcribing your baby's DNA, that is methylation. The level of methylation you have going on, you want it at like a good level, not under or over methylating, um, helps determine how your baby's genes are expressed, which impacts our risk for disease lifelong. So if you have methylation going at a happy place, you're going to have a lesser risk for birth defects. So that's why folate is commonly mentioned for neural tube defects. You're going to have um, a lesser risk for type 2 diabetes, obesity, heart disease, um, even Alzheimer's disease later in life if methylation is kicking along as it should. And there's a lot of nutrients that are involved in methylation. I think people like to just focus on the folate and the MTHFR genetic variation. And that's like the only thing people think about with methylation. It's so much more complex than that. And there's so many more genetic things going on other than MTHFR. Um, but you have you know, folate, B12, vitamin B6, 
choline, betaine, glycine. These are all nutrients that are interrelated in their function in the methylation cycle, um, methylation process in your body. So glycine is one that, aside from the methylation thing, is also involved in um, the health of your connective tissue, the growth of bone, skin, joints, connective tissue, internal organs. And as you can imagine, those, those things are not only happening in the fetus and pregnancy. I mean, you're building a human from scratch, okay? <laughs> but also in a mother's body, your skin is stretching, the uterus is growing, the uterus contains 800% more collagen at term than it does pre-pregnancy. And collagen is a third by weight glycine. So when you're looking at like, where are you going to be getting glycine, you're looking at collagen rich foods, which is the bone, skin and connective tissue of animal foods. It's, it's no surprise that like, one builds the other. <laughs> so um, Weston Price's stuff tended to people who were eating people in indigenous cultures before we had like grocery stores and modern processed food and you could go buy boneless, skinless chicken breasts and lean steak. When they ate animals, they were eating nose to tail. And by default, if you're making use of the tough cuts of meat, using the bones to make broth, eating the skin, um, you're consuming higher amounts of glycine than most people do in a modern diet. And glycine, I think, is kind of ignored a lot in conventional nutrition because it's not considered an essential amino acid. So you won't hear it in many discussions about, say, like combining proteins on a vegetarian diet. They won't talk about glycine because outside of pregnancy, it's not an essential amino acid. You can make it from other amino acids that you're getting in your diet. During pregnancy, that's different. It's actually considered conditionally essential. So you have to consume it from your diet to get enough. And I think this is one of the things that frustrates me about the guidelines we have is that they don't even talk about glycine at all. This was nowhere in my training as a dietitian. It's even hard to find a lot of solid data on it related to pregnancy. They just tend to show that Glycine needs are higher. It's conditionally essential. It's beneficial in all of the animal models when they consume more of it. And a lot of pregnant women, particularly vegetarians, show a higher rate of glycine insufficiency. It's like all of the data taken together is like, this is something important that we should focus on. But it's still in general fairly understudied. And so it's not on many people's radar at this point. Mm. I love what you're doing, Lily, sort of taking these ideas that are, are becoming more commonplace. So, you know, the paleo diets everywhere and people are talking about um, if you're a vegetarian, how to get your animal fats, the role animal fats play. But you're really breaking it down in, with research and into each nutrient where it comes from and why it is essential. It's not just another name, something that's in the bone broth or in the, the animal right. fat. This is what it is, and this is like a very key role. I really love it. I love what you're doing. It's so important. Um, so as a postpartum doula, 
I love cooking food anyway, but I love um, developing postpartum dishes and getting inspiration from all over the world, but developing my own. So in that, I'm really trying to um, take all of this into account. So can we talk a little bit more about postpartum recovery needs and if they're similar to pregnancy or more or different? Yeah, so postpartum recovery needs are actually higher than pregnancy. Uh, this is another area that's a little bit understudied, in my opinion. I think most of the research tends to focus just on breastfeeding women requiring higher amounts of nutrients. But I actually argue that everybody needs higher amounts of nutrients, whether or not you're breastfeeding. You'll certainly expend less um, since it's, you don't have the energy and nutrient intensity of breastfeeding happening at the same time, but you still you've just gone through the most nutritionally expensive time in your life, growing a human being from scratch. And nutrient stores tend to be lower post-pregnancy than they are pre-pregnancy, and you need to replenish those stores. Plus, if you have um, had a really long labor or maybe a surgical birth or you have a perineal tear, like there is... A, like energy needs that need to be replaced. You've, you've like run a proverbial marathon or gone through major abdominal surgery, um, but you also have tissues that need to heal. So you have a tear or a surgical wound that needs to heal. Your uterus needs to completely remodel and shrink down to its previous size. Your skin, especially on your belly that has been stretched in pregnancy, that needs to undergo a lot of collagen remodeling. Your connective tissue and ligaments have changed significantly. Those need to kind of take, they take a lot of time, but those need to come back to baseline as well. And that involves a lot of collagen and then amino acids within it. Your breasts have changed. They're usually pretty engorged postpartum. That's more skin stretching that is requiring high amounts of collagen. Maybe you lost blood during birth. Everybody does to some degree. Plus you have lochia, the postpartum bleeding. You need to replenish your, your blood, <laughs> really. Um, and that requires a lot of nutrients. Um, so it, it's a little bit silly when you look at I mean, certainly a lot of the guidelines are suggesting higher amounts of nutrients postpartum, but some of them are lower. Like they say that iron needs are lower postpartum. And I, and the, the, the rationale is that you're not having a monthly menstrual cycle. I think that's so ludicrous because you've, most women don't start pregnancy with adequate iron stores to begin with. And then you grow a human being and then you give birth and lose blood, and then you have lochia. It's like, no, we need to be replenishing iron stores right now, not telling people they need low iron amounts. So I, I argue for more iron, more B12, more choline, more DHA, more iodine, more of these nutrients that you need to support breast milk production um, and also replenish your, your nutrient stores and blood loss. Yeah, and muscle repair if there was any pelvic floor. Um, well, everyone's sure. is affected by, by pregnancy and then birth. So many factors. And I'm glad you say that because there's so much emphasis on eating well and taking your supplement during pregnancy. And then afterwards it's like, oh, there you go. You just yeah. <laughs> like, do whatever you want. Like baby's out. 
Yeah, the placenta sized wound on the inside to here. That's another one. Yeah. That's have a, a huge have a lock here, which is a lot of period for a few weeks. So <laughs> you might not be getting a period every month, but you've just bled for three to six weeks. Yeah, you know, it'd be interesting if they measured the amount like average lochia compared to what's lost in a menstrual cycle and how many menstrual cycles that is equivalent to. I've never seen data on that, but it's like it's substantial. I mean, it's it's definitely a, at least a heavy period for most women and often Absolutely. a lot more. Yeah, that's really interesting. I might look into that. And it's good to have those little things to say like the lochia is um equivalent to this many periods because it makes people think in a different way and sort of yeah. validate that their needs are higher and that this is yeah. important when you break it down like that and um and i guess also in that postpartum time traditionally people always had the warming foods high nutrient density yes um and often there was like medicinal herbs in there too to aid with that healing alongside mm-hmm. the high fat foods and a not lot to of the mention, foods. yeah, yeah. Um, not to mention the mental health benefits of having your nutritional needs um, built back up and not being at a deficient. I don't know what the stats are in America, but here in Australia, the leading cause of maternal death in the first year after birth, so not early postpartum, late postpartum, is suicide. Wow. Yeah, it's really serious, which is part of the reason I sort of jumped from social worker to postpartum doula. Part of the reason, there's lots of reasons. But um, yeah, and I really think that that's partly our social structures. Um, There's a lot of things going on, but also I think it's partly nutritional that people are operating at a deficient. So their hormones and therefore all their neurochemistry is just out of whack. Um, and then the nervous system is out of whack too, just can't recover from that huge feat of growing a child and then birth, which has a huge toll on the nervous system. Yeah. And then, and then not to mention like not, not sleeping for a long yes. period of time <laughs> and then <laughs> well, constantly being responsible for a new life. And then especially if you're nursing continually being depleted, I mean, yes. you, if you're exclusively breastfeeding, you are continuing to grow this new life it's just outside of the womb yes and a lot more demanding of your time (laughs) so it's a lot and there is there is data showing for example like dha levels um at least when they look in rat brains they can't ethically do this on humans but they look in rat brains post-pregnancy and they're actually lower in dha than they were um pre-pregnancy so showing that you know we're preferentially transferring those good omega-3s to baby, but that's potentially at the detriment of a mother's mental health. So that again, highlights the importance of, okay, well you need to continue to either focus on a source of, of omega-3s and DHA in your diet and, or continue with your supplement, your fish oil supplement or your algae based DHA supplement during the postpartum period as well to replete those stores and make sure your brain health is, is good to go. And of course it's more than just DHA, but that's, you know, one, one tiny example among many. Mm. Yeah. It's so interesting. It's interesting. You say that the um, DHA is lowered because in some of my postpartum studies in the neuroscience of what happens in a mother's brain um, in pregnancy and then postpartum is that the in MRIs it shows that the brain can decrease in, by up to 
function and I'm not sure if it's volume I'm, I need to look at what that what physiologically is actually going on there again so I can articulate it better but there is that five percent decrease which now I'm thinking as I'm talking to you is that just a byproduct of the fact that the mother has given this huge component of their brain nutritionally to the baby so it, and then it rebuilds in the postpartum yeah. so there's almost like and a an effect of that also is sort of a rewiring of the mother to biologically become a mother, so part of the brain. Right, right. Off and then rebuilds and becomes um, rewired and rebuilt in an optimum way. But I'm, now I'm thinking I wonder how that would differ depending on a mother's nutritional um, mm. levels. Yeah, before, it does make you know? wonder. I mean, there's a lot of brain-supportive nutrients that are preferentially transferred in breast milk, like choline, for example, transferred in pretty high amounts in breast milk, iodine transferred in high amounts of breast milk. And these are things where the levels that are in breast milk are actually reflective of a mother's intake. So if you're not taking in enough, your body is really working overtime to try to produce nutritionally sufficient, nutrient-dense breast milk. And so it's, it's going to continue to deplete your stores as much as possible. I mean, biologically, your body is like, grow this new life, you know, sacrifice yourself to grow the progeny, like the next generation. Um, and it's really up to you. And I think more so up to community support and awareness around this because you shouldn't be cooking like you should have all your <laughs> all the meals, people like yourself and friends and family supplying you with food, but I think it just highlights how important it is to nourish new mothers. I mean, it's, it's absolutely vital for the health of both mother yeah. and infant. Yeah, absolutely. And what should optimally be a time of high oxytocin and bonding and love um, can just be given by not even the nutritional quality, but the nurturing quality of a warm meal. So why not? make that nutrient dense at the same time. Yeah. Um, oh, there were lots of things I was thinking of then. So with the breastfeeding, this is partly a selfish question, but also really important for postpartum clients. I've been breastfeeding for four and a half years. So I've got the dark circles to bring. <laughs> My 18 month old is just a 20 month old has decided to um, start breastfeeding a lot again. I think she's teething. Oh, but, um, yeah. So do the needs go up are they is, are they going up in some areas and so then the diet sort of needs to change a little bit or if people just stick to kind of having these nutrient dense animal fat foods that it's just going to adjust and you're going to get what you need all along that period so most of our recommendations are breastfeeding are actually based on the first six months so exclusive breastfeeding and the estimate is that you need a minimum of 500 extra calories per day. And then there's a number of different nutrients that increase Go up. in the quantity. Again, they're estimates. So it's what we believe um, is needed in higher amounts. And so that includes, gosh, vitamin D, B12, choline, iodine, uh, zinc, number of different nutrients mm. increase, um, vitamin A as well. Um, increase in the postpartum phase. Mm. And 
the degree to which you're breastfeeding beyond that six month period would be relative to how much your nutrient needs stay elevated. So, you know, I, I'm big on, we have so many unanswered questions and there's so much individuality to nutrition that I'm big on um, incorporating mindful eating into what you're doing. So, you know, assume early on your nutrient needs are really high and you need a lot of food. And typically your hunger reflects that. I mean, a lot of breastfeeding women in the early months are extremely hungry. <laughs> I know I was extremely hungry. I mean, I was eating my husband, which pretty much never, never even happened during pregnancy. Yes, um, postpartum, yes. it was insatiable hunger and absolutely required the most nutrient dense things possible. I mean, I was like, you know, he made, my husband made me breakfast early postpartum and it was like, you know, a typical breakfast for me is like two eggs and some veggies and some other stuff. And I was like, I'm going to need like triple this amount of food. This is nowhere near enough <laughs> for me right now. Kind of eating, yeah, eating around the clock and, you know, making meatloaf with hidden liver in it, which of course is super high choline, iron, B12, all the good things. It was just so much food. And then over time, that'll kind of decline. Um, your milk supply regulates a little more um, a couple months in and then depending on how long you're breastfeeding, how often you're breastfeeding as you go into the year mark and 18 months and two years and however long you're nursing, you're usually not nursing quite as frequently. Um, and oftentimes your hunger levels have, have regulated about that time. So it's hard to say, you know, how many nutrients are being lost in breast milk when you're feeding an older toddler who's nursing once or twice a day for like five minutes at a time. Um, it's certainly less energy intensive than nursing a five month old, for example. So I think we need to take that into consideration, even though we don't have really solid research at this point saying like, okay, your nutrient needs are, will remain like 25% higher or 10% higher or because every baby, every mother is so different. Every woman's milk supply is so different. Her energy metabolism, hormone metabolism, thyroid metabolism is different. And that'll all impact your, you know, energy requirements and, and nutrient requirements. Yeah. Yeah. I guess it comes back to that idea of intuitive eating. And I know intuitive can be a bit of a loaded word sometimes when first of all, you need to have a baseline of data. And I was right. my last podcast, I was talking to my postpartum doula teacher about breaking down what intuition is. And, and I really like the idea that it's a, um, once you've collected a data set of information in your life, then it just comes through as a knowing, but initially it takes mm -hmm. a lot of learning and rewiring mm -hmm. and it feels like it's just a knowing, but it actually took a lot of accumulation to get there. And I feel like eating's like that. You need to be exposed mm -hmm. to lots of high nutrient dense foods, then for your body to be able to send those signals to you to tell you what it needs or yes. if it needs a little bit less. And that's where the intuitive yes. eating, but you can't have that intuitive eating if the exposure to higher nutrient dense foods hasn't been there to send that signal to your yes. body, I guess. I, I agree. There's some degree of, um, especially just in our flavor preferences, mm. 
that, you know, processed foods are literally engineered to make us crave them and become addicted to them. <laughs> I mean, you could show it on brain studies looking at the dopamine surge you get from having, you know, refined carbohydrates and then all the flavor chemicals they put in foods to make us crave them. Like, those are probably always going to taste good, yeah. good to us. It just, it just is. It, there's a science behind why they made them taste so good. Um, there is some degree on the mindful eating part where we need to make sure we don't throw out nutritional common sense with this idea that, well, your body will just tell you, or yes, you can, yeah, like you'll know when you're having the right thing because you'll feel X, Y, Z. I mean, if you haven't had that exposure yet to really feeling this like deep sense of energy that I think you get from high nutrient dense foods, like this satiation, um, you just don't get from a bag of chips. You know, they might be really enjoyable to eat at the time, but your energy is like a complete disaster after the fact and you're craving more high carb foods to follow up with it. So I think it's a good, it's a good balance to have the real food and the mindful eating working together. And, you know, no matter where you are, it's like always a good thing to be <laughs> introducing more nutrient dense real food to your diet so that your taste buds can slowly adapt to a different type of flavor. Mm. I think it still tastes really good. And I actually think it tastes better now. Yes. Um, but still, if you open up a bag of like, I don't know, barbecue potato chips, yeah. like they're still going to taste good. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's almost like they're a mild drug. They need a new classification in the way that yeah. sugar or caffeine is a drug. Those foods are so low in nutrients or devoid of that. They not even foods, foods should be a category for nutrients. And then that's, that's a drug. It's like having a cup of coffee yeah. in a way <laughs> and knowing that when you're doing it. <laughs> right. right. Also right. between surviving and thriving. So you can survive and people can live surprisingly <laughs> for quite a while before having health issues sometimes, but we are seeing more health issues in children, which is a whole nother topic. That <laughs> yeah. Love to talk to you about, but um, yeah. And then thriving. So having that really high nutrient dense and until people have experienced thriving they don't have that baseline um exactly. so just before we start to wrap up i'd love to ask you a little bit about epigenetics and if you've uh, looked into any of the research and how our diet is not only impacting us now and our children now but for future generations also yeah um, this goes right back to our methylation uh, discussion from earlier yes, yeah. and the Western price work, essentially what he was showing were epigenetic effects where um, you'll be, you'll be giving your child the same genes. You're not changing the genetics they're getting. They're still inheriting the same genes, but you're changing the expression of those genes, which can set them up for potential problems later in life. What we see from well, what we see it ob seen observationally from Price's work, but what we also see from animal studies, of course, it's a lot easier to do epigenetic studies in lab rats, for example, because their reproductive cycles are so much shorter that you can like breed three or four generations of rats for a single study, whereas with humans, you have to wait 
decades and decades to accumulate all the data, um, although we do have some studies on humans. Um, but mostly from the lab, lab rat and lab animal research, we see that exposures in going back two generations to like, so what your grandparents ate can actually affect the grandchildren. Especially when it comes to women, since technically your eggs are formed mm. in your grandmother's mm. uterus when your mom is in utero, um, that seems to probably be a, a bigger um, uh, contribution to the changes that you see epigenetically. So there's, you know, many, many different examples of this from ranging from inadequate calorie intake to too much calorie intake, um, to low protein intake, to high of protein intake, although I'll qualify that these are rat studies. So when they say too high of protein intake, it equates to like an absurdly high amount of protein that a human being would actually never um, consume unless you're like only living off of protein shakes and nothing else. <laughs> so usually the issue is too low of protein. Um, changing the types of fat in the diet for one for the other. Um, and then specific micronutrients. So I just saw one on choline, for example, where they were looking at um, risk of Alzheimer's disease in rats um, across three generations. And even the rats who, whose grandparents were exposed to choline, but parents had a low choline diet, those rats still fared better. So they're the grandchildren of the high choline consumers. They still had a lower risk of Alzheimer's disease than the ones who had, you know, two generations before them with low exposure to choline. So even though their parents were consuming much during pregnancy, it was their grandparents' intake that affected their disease risk. So you can either take this to be really scary because it's out of your control what your grandparents or even your parents ate, um, or you can take it from a different angle, which is that and Dr. Price showed this in a lot of his work as well, where when the parents return to their traditional high nutrient dense diet, even if there were deformities or birth defects or other things going on in previous generations, you can actually offset some of that risk by switching your diet to be more nutrient dense. And I mean, we have enough stuff to worry about that's not in our control, that that's where I try to have the focus is, yeah. This part is within your control because we have all of this strong data, particularly on maternal intake, even like dad's intake preconception. You know, he's supplying half the DNA for the baby. Yeah. <laughs> so dad matters too. Um, but with the parents, there's a lot that you can do just in that one reproductive cycle, even if you don't believe that your parents or your grandparents had very good nutrient levels yeah nutrient. i love it it's almost like i was thinking of both those aspects when you're talking it's almost like evolutionary there's a buffer so if there's a famine yeah. or something's going on in one generation skips um a high nutrient access to high nutrients as long as it is picked up in the next generation overall we're gonna do okay 
<clears throat> excuse me. Yes. But if it continues, it's scary when, if it continues on generation after generation being depleted. So I like, right. I was thinking of my grandmother who grew up in the depression here in Sydney. She was in quite a poor family of nine and, but they all have done really well. <laughs> They're all still alive. Yeah. She's 87. She's third oldest. Yeah. And, um, I like that I've inherited a little bit of that and that then I can pass that on. So there's huge positive to that because, yeah, like you said, we're bombarded with environmental toxins and environmental catastrophes everywhere. Yeah. So it's nice to think that we can make a, a huge difference in our own health and our grandchildren and great-grandchildren and that we evolutionarily have that little bit of a buffer. Um, yeah, how I like to describe it to people is um, to make the, the correlation or the, um, relate it to plants so you're like a gardener you know you'd plant a tomato seed you're going to grow a tomato plant probably it just needs the basics like soil light water even if you over underwater it a little bit like it's going to try to grow okay <laughs> and it's going to make a tomato plant um if you are like a master gardener and you have amazing compost that's high in nutrients and microbes and you figured out the right amount to water it and you're careful about where you place it so you optimize sunlight exposure you're going to grow a very robust tomato plant that's going to produce a lot of really good tomatoes that's Seeds. that's essentially the equivalent of epigenetics it's like your body still has the blueprints for a baby and it's still going to be you know knock on wood a, a a functional human being. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. Our focus with the epigenetic stuff is how can we optimize all of these inputs? Um, here we've been talking mostly nutritional, but you can take it to, you know, the movement and exercise stuff, eliminating toxins, um, sleep hygiene, mental health stuff, even, you know, the way that you birth, potentially microbiome, there's so many areas that you can take it. It's like, how can we optimize all of these factors to just try to grow the healthiest baby that we possibly can mm. without getting like so bogged down by, oh my gosh, all these things could go wrong that you like freak yourself out and, and turn it into like this, this stressful situation. I, I really try to focus it more on the empowering aspect the stuff that's within our control and um letting people know that there 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 is more that you can do beyond just like taking a prenatal vitamin and calling it a day you know yeah absolutely yeah i think that's really important is that you can always catch up now like whether your parents didn't have a good diet or your diet wasn't perfect you can start eating well for yourself and slowly change your children's diet. There's always empowerment's the key word. I really love that. And it is something that should be, it's a, always a fine line with anything like this. You want to educate people, but not be too, create too much fear and then yes. bring positive solutions. Yes. And your dad's diet, we're running um, out of time. So I'm conscious I've had you here for a while. It's also interesting. I feel like you talk for hours, <laughs> but dad's diet is so important too. I follow Lisa uh, Hendrix and Jack on Fertility Friday, who I know you did a yes. podcast with and I love her podcast and I'll be interviewing her soon. Um, oh, also, yeah, so I think there needs to be a lot more education about the role dad plays there too and his nutritional needs and sperm Absolutely. quality. 
Yeah. So um, before we wrap up, I'd just like to ask you what your favourite foods are at the moment. What are you enjoying eating? Hmm. You know, I'm one of those people where my food intake, it actually varies quite a bit. I think people think I'm very like, always got to eat this, always got to eat that. It varies a lot seasonally. So yeah, right now, um, I've really been enjoying spicy foods right now. So, you know, my eggs this morning, I had them with like really spicy salsa. I'm really liking Mexican food. So, you know, beans and like carne asada or some sort of slow cooked chili kind of a pork dish um those things are tasting really good to me right now um, you're in the middle <laughs> it, it totally varies um you know based on the season like in the summer I'm really into berries because there's a lot of berries around me to forage and so it's it's very seasonal for me Wonderful. Yeah. So that'd be a fun thing to see what you're eating. You're in the middle of winter right now, aren't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So it makes sense that you want those nice, warm, warming, spicy foods. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're in the heat of summer. Today's a cool day, but we've had average 40 degree days. I'm usually sitting here interviewing, no air con, sweating, but I'm nice. Oh, and man. Cold. Yeah. That's the time of year where like salads and yes. fruit and <laughs> just Lots fresher. Yeah. Foods taste so much better. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. So, um, like I said, Lily has some great books, and I highly recommend having a look at them. And not only for people, often it's the women who are pregnant or wanting to get pregnant who are buying these books and looking at them, but even if you're a partner or a family member or a friend, I really highly recommend looking at Lily's books as a great investment and a way to be able to, to build your village and be a supportive person and look at how to, you can cook some really great nutrient-dense foods for your friends that are having babies and for your own family. And it doesn't matter what stage postpartum you're at, it's never too late to give yourself a postpartum retreat and to catch up on those nutrients. Um, so also Lily has website and some great freebies on there and some courses, but I'll let you tell people a little bit about where they can find you and what's available. Sure. Yeah. So I think probably the book that most people would be interested in would be real food for pregnancy. This is mine all like marked up. Um, the other one on gestational diabetes really only applies to people who've been diagnosed with gestational diabetes. That's the one to get when you're kind of in that, you know, freak out like, ah, all is lost. Um, I'm here to reassure you that not all is lost. Um, So the books you can get on uh, Amazon and I believe in Australia, I know Nutrition for Life, they're in Tasmania. Um, I believe that's in Australia, yeah. (laughs) Okay. I know you're on you're on Fish Pond. I'm pretty sure you're on Booktopia and a few other ones. I'll find the links because I bought okay, great. one of them. Um, yeah, I know Nutrition for Life uh, stocks it, so that's really out there on a few other for books. people too. But um, yeah, so there's that's where you can check out the book. You know, it's also available in Kindle or audiobook. So that is if you don't want the paperback copy, um, those are easy to download and access anywhere in the world. Uh, my website is lilynicholsrdn.com and my, you know, Instagram handle is the same as my website, lilynicholsrdn. That's where I'm most active on social media. It's a little easier platform to 
share useful information with fewer trolls than <laughs> things like Twitter, <laughs> where everybody just wants to get in an argument about yes. nothing. Um, uh, over on my website, there's a little freebies tab uh, for a number of different downloads. So if you just want to get a sneak peek at Real Food for Pregnancy, you can download the first chapter for free. So that'll give you more information on what this whole real food thing is, why, um, good amount of information on epigenetics, the comparison of the nutrient density of a sample meal plan from my book versus the U.S. prenatal nutrition guidelines. So you can just see the numbers in black and white. I think it helps illustrate the point quite well. Um, so that's for free over on the website. And then there's a bunch of other different freebies on there as well, if you're interested. And I attempt to blog on a regular basis. It's a little bit tricky with a, a toddler in tow, but um, you'll find my blog up there as well. You've got um, a great blog. It's an awesome blog. Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah it's been many years in the making and I used to blog every single week. And then of course, since having my son, it's, it's uh, not as frequent as it used to be, but I, I do still post with uh, relative frequency. Um, and then you asked about the course. So uh, I have a couple things. So one is that I uh, do continuing education webinars, mostly geared towards healthcare professionals, but they're technically open to all. You don't have to prove that you're a healthcare provider, but they are, um, specifically very in-depth and research focused. So if you want to go deeper than what's in the book, um, believe it or not, I, I do do that <laughs> in webinar format. And that's at the Women's Health Nutrition Academy that links out from my website. And then I also have um, a course for women with gestational diabetes. And that one is also linked out on my website as well. So if you're specifically facing that and you want to connect with other moms who are following a real food approach to manage it. We always give the best shot we can without medication. I think that's why most people end up joining the course is they want to see how much they can do with real food. Um, that's where that is. And we have a really active Facebook group um, of mothers supporting each other through what is usually a very challenging diagnosis. And it's nice to see that there's an uplifting, supportive, educated space to discuss all of this stuff together. So. Oh, it's fantastic. I'm so glad you're out there in the world doing this. I found you on Instagram as well. Yeah, it's nice. a much more gentle platform to find people. And yeah, it's, I think for the most part, people don't follow people that rub them the wrong way. Yeah, where, that's right. <laughs> yeah. In other platforms, people just like to pick fights. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they go in with the contention. Right. Um, yeah. And I'm so glad that we've got people like you looking at the research because I love the facts of research, but I don't want to read all the research papers. So when I find someone who loves the research and loves putting it in a really easy to absorb, but still informative way, I'm like, woo. And you're one of those people. So thanks for being that person. Yeah. Thank you. yeah um, I like reading the research. So I just try to put it into context. So it makes sense to, everyone but uh sometimes it scares people off because it's it's just a lot of information right so you have to you have to be a person who wants to know the nitty nitty gritty details i'm the person who tends to go into that <laughs> yeah thank you <laughs> saves my brain a little bit of work but also i guess people can read as much of that as they want or they can just look at some recipes too and get 
the concepts that way in a very practical right. sense so they could do both. Thanks so much. I feel like I've got a hundred more questions for you now, but um, <laughs> we've been talking for an hour and it's been really fantastic. So yeah, thanks so much for your time, Lily. Thank you, Shelley. Thanks for listening. And if there was something there for you, please head on over to the pollinationmamas.com webpage, sign up for the latest podcasts, nourishing recipes, blogs, and much more. Head on over to Anchor FM at Pollination Mamas and sign up for the podcast there or to Facebook and Instagram and say hello. But importantly, share widely with anyone you may know who would gain something from this. Thank you.